Well, let's start with a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you have called many people to follow you and to serve your kingdom. Um, and we give you thanks for um, your, your uh, child in Christ and, and your disciple, uh, Gene Veith. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave him uh, in writing this book. And we thank you that it can be used to uh, bless other Christians and those seeking the faith um, to point them to God's word and to the hope that we have in Jesus. Bless us as we discuss this book, The Spirituality of the Cross. May it enliven our faith um, and bring about within us uh, the Spirit of God and, and drive us to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, have you guys ever read this before? Not me. No? Totally new to you? Okay. Um, so this was a book that I think my dad actually got me when I was in high school when I started thinking about possibly going to the seminary um and i really enjoyed it and the nice thing is it's written by a layman so mm -hmm. it's pretty accessible mm -hmm. he's a, you can tell he's a smart guy but mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's not um there's not real real niche theological stuff going on in it which mm -hmm. i'm sure is a nice thing for non-weird people <laughs> like that aren't like me it, um it's funny you said that because i showed you what was inside of mine uh -huh. the one that i got oh, yeah, through yeah. half price <laughs> my daughter got it and oh yeah Hi. yep Hi. we didn't read it hey but you said come we on yeah yeah More please do please yeah. come in yeah, yeah, yeah so we haven't even started, started yet so. and then we couldn't remember which room was which. <laughs> so we well i go i went off of the <laughs> i went off the signups up there there were more people signed up for herds and so i figured i'll put her in the bigger room yeah. and then if it, it turns out uh, janine is teaching the other one yeah. Um, I don't know. Cheryl, uh, Sherry was coming with us. We didn't know where we were going. Well, uh, well she's she'll find somebody. <laughs> she'll find out. I mean, either way, it'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. It'll which be good either way. This one, this one is the spirituality one. of the cross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which, uh, even if, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. even no, if no, you no. don't I read it, it in tandem with more. this class, I would there highly recommend it. It's a good <laughs> book. So, um, you can probably find this one on audiobook as well if you want to do yeah, that. I've oh, well, I've got mine on Kindle. You, it, it would definitely be available on Kindle. I'm sure there's probably an audiobook of it um, as well, but it's definitely a worthwhile um, book just in general. So. We try to pick those so that you know you don't have. You, we can double dip on books you should be reading, at some point, anyways, as well as what we're doing on, on, on Sundays. So I'm not much of a reader. So. That's okay. I got so many books that I never finish. You know, like your Bible studies that I have at home. Oh yeah, that's we're all that way. We all, I got all those too. Um, okay, so. Um, what I'm going to do, the way I'm going to format this class is we'll just do kind of the sections of the book, and I'll start by asking you if you had something that you read in that section that really jumped out that you were curious about, just so I, you know, don't miss a question that is really kind of burning in your mind as a result of, of the book. Um, but I also have some preset stuff, so, so don't worry if we're not just going to stare at each other in awkward silence <laughs> if you don't have any specific questions. So we'll start with the introduction and the, the first uh, evangelicals, was there anything in that introduction that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a question, anything that jumped out at you as interesting or a question that, that came about as a result of reading that section? My, I would just say my general like overview, initial comment before I forget it, is that... Um, he, you know, throughout the first two chapters, he, he makes mention of the fact that 
I'm not a theologian, I'm not a theologian. And I'm reading this and I'm just saying, like, this is such strong Lutheran theology. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, it's just so, it, you'd think he was a theologian. Yeah. And he's not just being, like, apologetic or acting like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I'm just saying, it's just, right. it just seems to be such a strong core. He reminds me of Lewis in that way, because Lewis yeah. will always mention that as well. He'll make yeah. some point and then he'll say, you know, that he'll mention, like, there are others who who are called and, and study this for a living that may know better than I. Yeah. Even yeah. though you're reading it and thinking, like, well, that was actually good. That was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, so it's not an admission of, like, I don't know anything, but no. just know that no, I, didn't I did. this way. is not my study. It's not my call. It's, uh, this isn't like I've done a, a, a ton of research. It's a personal thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does that, that element does come out in there. One of the questions I had was, um, have you followed a similar spiritual journey as he has? So he mentions at the beginning a lot how he was really searching. Yes. Right. Yeah. And he bounced around to all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. He was a very liberal activist at one point, and mm-hmm. then um, he, and he's tried almost every denomination of Christianity. Mm-hmm. He's read like uh, about Islam and Hinduism, and he meet, and he mentions a few elements of those, um, which um, you know it's always fascinating to me when I read people who've who've done that. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Um, Lutheranism, it's, it's funny because you, I would, you ironically think as a Lutheran yourself, if that's the journey you're going to go, there's no way you're going to end up at yeah, Lutheran. Lutheran. Yes, right. But right, they do, right, right, right. <laughs> which is, is sort of surprising because they're looking for something inspiring and they go and find it and then it ends up disappointing them. And, and when you really kind of dig into the details, the journey makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and so he emphasizes in here... Um, if you look at uh, top of page 16, he says in the first whole paragraph there, what I needed was a spiritual framework big enough to embrace the whole range of human existence, a realistic spirituality. I needed a spirituality that is not a negation of the physical world or ordinary life, but one that transfigures them. So um, he was making the point in his journeys to all these different um, ways of, of living these different spiritualities that they didn't really explain or um, deal with the whole human experience, right? So some of them were overly spiritualized, and so they kind of just didn't pay any attention to the ordinary things of physical life. Um, others were, were so focused on that that there was no sense of transcendence, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of those. They all kind of fall into three general categories, those different spiritualities, and we'll talk about those in the next uh, section. Um, but there's one thing I wanted us to look at. It's on the bottom of page 16, and he, he makes reference to something that C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. Have any of you guys read Mere Christianity? No? Okay. No. So um, that one you can definitely find an audiobook for, and I would highly recommend it. It's very good. What's um, it called? It's called Mere, Mere Christianity, Christianity, M-E-R-E, um, and uh, it's by C.S. Lewis. And uh, there's some great audiobooks of that, um, and it's very, it's very good. Um, I can recommend that one. And in that, he, he's making reference to something from that book here. And so I'm just going to read through it, and then we're going to discuss it a little bit. So it's on page 16. It goes to the top, page 17. It says, C.S. Lewis, a major influence on my faith, wrote about mere Christianity, focusing on what all Christian theologies have in common. The lowest common denominator, he said, was like a hallway a vestibule from the outside into the house of faith. He went on to point out, however, that to actually live in Christianity, one must leave the hallway and enter one of the rooms. 
It is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. That is to say, Christians must join some church. Um, This is where some of the frustrations come. In my own case, none of the local congregations I knew quite measured up to the Christianity I had discovered in books. Part of this was sheer immaturity on my part. Many Christians hold to impossible ideals and have an inadequate theology of ordinary life, and so are often disappointed in actual churches. As Lewis says elsewhere, new Christians often think of the church in terms of togas and sandals rather than everyday human beings like themselves. But it is sometimes true that those rooms in the house of Christianity lack fires and chairs and meals. So, um, what he's pointing out is that you can't have a spirituality that doesn't attach itself to an actual physical like community and place and activity. Right? Um, and so it's good to be brought into the hallway, but when you go, like, just think of a regular hallway in a house, right? Why do you go into a hallway? To get somewhere. To get somewhere, right? You don't go into a hallway to stay in the hallway, right? The purpose of the hallway is to bring you to another place, right? And so um, Lewis makes this point in Mere Christianity that, that Mere Christianity, just the, the commonality among all Christian denominations, is the hallway. And it's not meant to be a place you stay. It's meant to be a place that takes you somewhere else. Right? Um, and of course, he, he uses the analogy to say it's obviously you're not going to get any of the gifts that are intended in the hallway. Right? Just like if you go to a friend's house, if you stay in the hallway, you're never going to get to the meal and to the fellowship and the sitting and, and all that good stuff. Right? The reason that you came and the reason they invited you. So he's saying here that spirituality in a Christian sense, it can't just be um, you know, this, this entryway, right? It has to actually take you somewhere. Um, and until you follow that into one of the rooms, you won't actually, like, it won't actually be fulfilling, right? And that's part of what he encountered when he bounced around to these different things, is he tried Hinduism, he tried, he looked into Islam, he tried all these different denominations of Christianity, but they didn't really, they didn't really have the fires of fellowship and the food and, and the, the things that, that the church was supposed to have in his mind. Okay? Now, it is true, as he points out, that you can go to some churches, and those churches, whether they realize it or not, they try to make themselves remain hallways. Because there is a certain scandal in becoming a room. It means that you have now defined things in a real sense, whereas in the hallway, you're kind of safe because nothing's real yet. right? Just like... The hallway is probably the place when you go to somebody's house for the first time where you give yourself your little pep talk if you're nervous about meeting somebody new. But in order to meet them, you actually have to go into the room and then it becomes real in a way that is a little bit scary at times, right? Um, And so churches, especially in recent times, um, they've tried to take away all the scary real stuff in order to sort of remain a hallway, right? Because the scary real stuff makes things real, which means that it defines things in a way that excludes other things. And we don't like that. That, that worries us and it freaks us out. Um, so so that I just wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit because I, I find that a very helpful image um, with regards to the Christian life. Right, The hallway is a good and right thing, but it has a certain function, and it is not the place that you're meant to stay. Right? It seems it seems like the non-denominational aspect is like a, a you know there there's a concern about it will be uninviting if we have to actually exclude that's right. and and that's what the 
that's I think what the and, and it it works to, or it has you know I'm not so sure it's working as much well now, but, but it did even know, the definition of it working as far as is wonder I mean so if the goal is the fire and the chair and the meal is having a thousand people in a hallway actually right. working right yeah, yeah. Right, and and that's what the Bible encourages us to think. Right, is I could have seven thousand people in my church, but it may not be a very good church if I'm not bringing them any of the things from God that the church is supposed to bring. Mm-hmm. Then we're just seven thousand people in a hallway, mm-hmm. not getting any of the gifts God intends. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what it seems with the non-denominational. Everybody likes it at first because it's you know they're just singing and having fun and all that, but when it comes down to what they want in out of church. They're not getting it, and they they leave. You know, I've heard so many people uh-huh. say, yeah. uh-huh. "I used to go to that church," but yeah, and that, and he kind of had a similar experience. That's kind of what he sketches out as here. So he gets involved in these communities, and then there's something missing, yeah. and eventually he moves on. Yeah. Um, and the the interesting thing is the exclusion part of it isn't actually even an act of exclusion because everybody in the rooms. In one way or another, they're inviting the people from the hallway into the room. So the invitation is an active thing. But the person comes into the room, and maybe they don't like the way the furniture's arranged or the food that's being served. They'd rather have something else. And they reject what's given to them, and then they say they were excluded. Yeah. Right? Um, even though the person that's in the room has never excluded them, and it's in fact wanted them to come into the room. Um, and either they weren't ready for it, or um, they rejected what was offered, and all that kind of stuff. And in our culture, we've really confused... Uh, like the act of rejection of someone with like being uninviting or exclusive right um and the housing imagery i find helpful even in that discussion because if you if you boil it down to like a mundane dinner party that you've invited some people over for um, it would be totally inappropriate of your guests to then want to rearrange the furniture in your dining room and change the food that you're giving them right Um, because it's not their place to do so that's the responsibility of the host right and so uh, obviously, whenever you're talking about something like this, people are thinking of communion, right? And um, and that's the way communion works, right? It's God's house, it's his table, it's his rules. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry about that, but I can't do anything about that because I don't have the authority to change the way he's got his table set up. Right? I meant to give it to you the way that it's been given to me. right? Um, and so that's not excluding. I'm not actively excluding anyone because I can at the same time express an invitation to everyone, but I also can't give you something that we believe the scriptures say will be a judgment for you if you do if you do it on your own terms and not on God's, right? Um, so if you haven't already, if you look at our communion statement, there's a couple of scripture references in there that you should read those because First Corinthians 11 in particular is the one that kind of outlines that because Paul's writing to a church that decided to do communion on their own terms and it's not very... Uh, it's intentionally discouraging, but discouraging of bad practices and encouraging of good practices. Yeah. Um, and I think our culture defines exclusion as not being able to do what I want to do or believe I should be able to do. Right. right. It's an imposition. Yeah. Right? And in yeah. the hallway, there's no imposition. There's no imposition. In the rooms, there might be some impositions. Right? Um, okay. Um, and then the last question I had for this introduction was, why do you think would spirituality need to account for ordinary life? And how would it do that? And so before we answer that question, what when we say ordinary life, or when he says it, what do you think he means? What What is ordinary life in terms of spirituality or religious practice? 
day to day. Day to day, yeah. So what do we do day to day? Just name off a few things. What would fall into that? Get up, go to work. Okay, get up, go to work. Eat. (laughs) Go back to bed. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Eat. Left out watching TV. Oh, oh, yeah, TV. (laughs) TV. Right. That's very important. (laughs) Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Oh, <laughs> Good excuses. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> we should have that. Revival devotions. What else? <clears throat> uh, Socialize. Yeah, social, social engagements, sports, school, family, family, sports, family, school. Hard. <laughs> right? That's a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff, right? So, and as you're listing that out, how much, at what percentage of your waking life is taken up by these activities? You think? Pretty much all. I mean, that's a, a lot of it, right? Day. I, I would, I would probably say something around the order of like, let's say, ninety-eight percent. Right. So, if you have a spirituality that doesn't account for those activities, what is that spirituality missing out on? Almost your entire life. Right, right. Your entire actual life. These are the things you actually spend your time doing. And some of them are necessary things. You have to get up. You have to go to work. You've got to eat. You've got to sleep, right? Um, you don't necessarily have to re- watch TV or play games or whatever. Um, or the, some of the varied social engagements may not be required. Sports aren't required. But they're things that people do, right? And so it makes sense that spirituality has to engage with these things. Okay, So that kind of answers the why. But how would the spirituality engage with this stuff? What does, it, what does it have to do with all of these things? It should direct it, how you, okay. how you do it. Okay, it directs. It directs how you do things. Very good. So it gives you some direction on how exactly you should be doing these things. Um, so let's go with the example of work, right? So we have a theological word to describe work. It's vocation. And when work becomes a vocation as a, as a means of, of Christian spirituality, it transforms work from something that you're just doing to earn a paycheck to provide for your family to a work of God that is working through you, right? And how does that happen? It's because now you're a new creation where you work, and the things that you say and do and the way you behave is different and so now it serves a gospel and an eternal purpose as well as a functional earthly purpose, right? And there's probably also maybe some things you were doing while you were working before you were a Christian that are changed now, that are directed by this new life that you have, the spirituality that you follow, right? just as an example. Okay, so we got directs. What else? What else would it do? Well, yeah. anything really is like you're serving the Lord, whether it's <coughs> working... Um, you know, preparing meals at home or right. You know, okay, so we say we say that it gives it a, a meaning, mm-hmm. right? Um, and whenever I talk about this, the, the first name that pops into my mind for better or for worse is Robin Williams, right? Because Robin Williams had everything that the world says makes you happy. He was well, he was well liked. He made people laugh. He was wealthy, and yet he was empty empty enough to take his own life. Why? 
because ultimately for human beings, meaning is found from God. Right? And so what, what God does is he takes these mundane, day-to-day things and transforms them into activities with meaning. And not you know, fleeting meaning, but permanent, eternal meaning. Right? So making dinners for your children throughout their entire childhood has eternal significance. Because in so doing, you're, you're um, putting on display the caring and nurturing side of God, as well as using your, well, look at what the gospel reading today was all about, sitting at a table and fellowshipping, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that all those sorts of activities become transformed with, with deep meaning, right? Um, those are probably the two main ways that, um, that it does this. But it, it can also, and these two things are, they're a big deal, right? It, it gives you directions. Um, on how to do these things the way they were intended to be done, right? So when you become a Christian, it's not like you stop going to work and you stop eating and sleeping. You're, you're still doing all that normal human stuff, right? But now you're doing it the way God intended it to be done all along, right? As a means of, of blessing other people, right? Um, as a means of being grateful for the provision of God, right? Um, as a means of learning um, in humility his will, sharing it with your spouse or your children, with your friends, right? Um, uh, glorifying God through the gift of the body, right, in sports, right? The gratitude that can be expressed there. Um, that always makes me think of uh, Chariots of Fire, when the guy's he's wrestling with whether or not he should be an athlete, and he says that, he's like, you know, but I know God also made me fast, Right? Um, and that when that when I run, I can feel his pleasure, right? Um, and so the, all the, those sorts of things, they become something entirely new. So if your spirituality doesn't account for that, it's missing a huge chunk of the, all the stuff that you do. And eventually it's going to be like, how is all of this stuff I spend my time doing connected? So your result is either going to be like a lot of guilt because I don't seem to be doing anything of significance and an emptiness because... There's no meaning beyond, like, I just need money so I can buy a nice car or get a nice house and have a nice life. But there are all kinds of things that come along in the world that blow all that stuff apart. Right? And if you don't have anything undergirding all that, it just drops off into an abyss. Right? Um, so, so those are some ways of... Uh, and you can see why this becomes, if you're, if you're genuinely searching around and hopping around to spiritualities, this would become a key element of what needs to be accounted for. Explained, right? Because it's it's just literally the bulk of what you spend your waking life doing, um, and what and naturally as humans we're drawn away from these things to sensational things. Mm-hmm. There's nothing sensational about a mother making dinner for her family every night for 18 years. Now we think that's sensational, and the longer I've been alive, that consistency is a more miraculous thing to me than some one-time amazing event. Right? And it's much more formative because you got one mountaintop experience versus 10,000 dinners. Right? Mountaintop's going to lose. Right? Um, but we're, we like the, the glitz and the glamour. We want, we want the big show. And we will certainly get that with, with God. But he's much more concerned with us, so he's much more concerned with the things that we're spending the vast, vast majority of our time involved in and doing. Right? Okay. Any other comments, questions about the introduction parts? He makes a point that we're kind of the original evangelicals, um, even though that term has been kind of hijacked and, and means something else now. 
Um, but essentially that just means being focused on the gospel. And he makes a distinction between spirituality and theology as well. Um, and he, so he mentions here, so by spirituality, I do not mean any kind of content-free, theologically vacuous quest for transcendent experiences for their own sake, right? In other words, just like, kind of like staying in the hallway. He's not looking for, like when he says spirituality, it doesn't just mean like these transcendent experiences that aren't tied to like ritual and real people and places, um, but rather spirituality has to do with precisely, has to do precisely with the content, what fills abstract theology, mundane institutions, and the everyday life of the Christian with their real substance. So spirituality is all this stuff. Okay. So let's go to chapter one as justification the dynamics of sin and grace. And here he's um, bringing into play kind of the three main pathways to God that human beings find themselves in sort of naturally um, throughout history and it's still still true today. Right? Um, you have moralism, skepticism, and mysticism. And we're going to look a little bit what he says about those. So, um, I have an older version. Okay. I don't have the same version. I've got a, this is an older one. This is okay. a new edited one. Okay. And I'm not sure if he said in mine, moralism, speculation. It's, I think it's, it's uh, oh, it may be a speculation. speculation. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's, I'm not trying to correct. I'm just trying. It's hard. No, to, I think you're right. That sounds familiar. Yeah, speculation. Sorry. Okay. okay. I just want to make sure no, I, I wasn't studying you. the wrong one. <laughs> That's all. No, as soon it's as like, you said that, I was like, that actually sounds right. <laughs> Which, when he uses the word, it's not what speculation to me meant. That's why it's a bit confusing to that. Yeah. Anyway, you know what yeah. I mean? Is like, yeah. Okay, so on page 26 ish apparently it might be different on yours yeah. um he talks about he kind of defines moralism and here's what he says moralism is moralism is once is the way one seeks to earn god's favor or a satisfying life through the achievement of moral perfection always doing what is right avoiding wrongdoing of every kind keeping oneself under control by sheer willpower and a scrupulous conscience okay um, and he talks about these in a couple of ways. He talks about in the way that the world kind of follows after these things and moralisms and also how they manifest within Christianity. Because um, there are a lot of people who are Christians but that follow one of these three paths um, because we're kind of naturally drawn to them. Just like when groups of people get together, we want to naturally do comparisons and make hierarchies. We naturally are drawn to these three sort of approaches to the human relationship with God, right? So within these three, you can find pretty much every religious um, mm -hmm. adherence there is, mm -hmm. apart from, we contend, actual biblical Christianity. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't follow any of these, which is why, is for us, one of the credits to why it's actually from God, because we wouldn't have come up with it on our own. We would have mm -hmm. come up with one of these. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so... 
So starting with moralism, moralism is pretty obvious. So I'll just give an example. So if I'm going to be a Christian moralist, I'll take the story of David and Goliath and I'm going to make it about what, do you think? I don't know. Thank you. Good, Good and evil. Good yeah. and evil. And uh, uh, David followed what God told him to do, and that's why he was successful. He was doing right. I, mean, I don't know. He was doing the right thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So uh, the moral of good conquering evil, or you may have heard people talk about like slaying the giants in your yeah. life, that kind, of, that kind of talk, that is all moralist talk. Mm-hmm. And something gets lost there from the scriptures when we just reduce the biblical accounts to morality. Um, because you could, you could even, and people do, under the guise of moralism, reduce Jesus just to a great guy who loved and sacrificed. And that's really what his value was in his teaching. Mm-hmm. And what do you lose in that? You lose the actual reality as the Son of God. Mm-hmm. You lose the visceral nature of the, the righteous one actually being sacrificed in his blood, cleansing the sinful and making them righteous. None of that is accounted for in a moralistic reading of the Scriptures. That's all the weird ritual magical stuff mm-hmm. that gets discarded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, moralism um, can kind of strip away the actual viscera of the Christian faith and just reduce it to like nice, clean little statements that uh, the good will go to heaven, yeah, right? Or yeah. the bad will go to hell. And then that leaves out so much, right? And so then... Um, Moralism is obsessed. It's a act of will, so its its primary focus is on willpower, right? Um, that it's an act of self-will to be righteous, to behave properly, and so it's an act of will, and it's obsessed with behavior. And our behavior, yeah. With our behavior, yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> somebody who's taken in by moralism and and. When I say that, I don't mean that they've totally been taken in by moralism, but it seeps into aspects of Christian theology all the time. Um, is that, well, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't behave in X way. Right? Real Christians don't do Y. Right? Um, and, but the Bible says real Christians are all kinds of stripes of terrible. Um, and you know, God uses prostitutes and liars and drunkards and tax collectors and sinners of every variety, right? So, what do you mean Christians wouldn't do X? They have done X, and they will do X in the future, right? Um, so, um, probably the, the form of this you're most familiar with um, is, for short, it's MTD. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful. It's called Moralistic Therapeutic Deism which essentially reduces Christianity to a set of axioms about behavior and right and wrong, and God is just sort of somebody who is there to make you feel good about your ideas about morality, right? Um, And the danger with that is it insulates you from, essentially, your mind can't be changed because you know what the morality is. Even the Word of God can't change your mind, right? So if you've ever encountered somebody who grew up in the church and, and they say, well, this is wrong or this is right, but the, the appeal they're making is because it feels right to them or because of their personal experience, it's, it's usually moralistic therapeutic deism. God is there to make them feel good about the things that they feel are correct. And the things they feel are correct are the behaviors and, 
and the, the ways in which um, one must be loving or righteous or whatever it is that they're talking about. Does that, have you encountered that before? Um, essentially, it's the way that you would probably, the simplest way to put it is, they have sort of their own morality within Christianity. So they don't fully agree with anyone, and they, but they're right. Right, well, the Baptists are right about this, but they're wrong about this. The Lutherans are right about this, but they're wrong about this. The Catholics are right about this, but they're wrong about this. I mostly agree with you, but this isn't good. Right? Those are, those are people who've been taken in by moralism because what has become the most important measure of, of rightness? It's their own opinion. Right? Um, and usually when you talk to somebody like that, they won't really be referring to Scripture. They won't say, I, I think this is true because of this thing. Sometimes they do. Um, but most of the time, it's a it's a feeling, right? It, it's a it's an internal feeling they have, or it's an experience they've had with another person who, who, adheres to that kind of view of, of the faith. Right, so that's the major danger with moralism, um, and what of course is the main problem with that? If you reduce everything down to moralisms, what is lost? It's like a, I'm defining. Uh, I'm defining it. It's not looking yeah. to the Lord. It's right. me. You know, right. I'm deciding it. Yeah. And then, what's the practical result of that? Like the actual, like real life result of of turning turning it into that? We didn't recognize that Christ saved us. I mean, Willie's focus on exactly. It. it turns Christianity into nothing other than a self help book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a book about right living, and it's not that. Yeah. It's not that. It's much more than that. Um, very good. Okay. Uh, the second one with, uh, well, any other questions about moralism? The second one he covers in here is speculation, top of page 29. Another approach to spiritual life besides moralism is speculation. The assumption that knowledge is the key to spiritual fulfillment. Now, this is one that Lutherans are particularly susceptible to. Um, if we only knew the truth, if we could only find the key to understanding the complexities of life, if only we attained the right knowledge, then we would be content. Um, And not only are Lutherans susceptible to this, but really post-industrial enlightenment human civilizations, this is what drives it. The idea that at some point we're going to master the universe and we're going to unlock all of its secrets and we're going to understand everything. Um, And we're at a time, I think, in history right now where that has plateaued and we're really beginning to see maybe there's never going to be a time where we're going to fully understand all these things. Because it seems the digger, the deeper that we're digging with science, we're not getting more answers to our questions, but rather more questions. Because they're not finding what they're expecting to find. Right? I, I, in so far, even I've, I've uh, listened to some people talk who are scientists who are saying that um, atheism is really declining among scientific communities because of this. Because... The, the deeper that they've dug into physics, it's just much more, it's becoming more and more of a sort of anti-scientific leap to hold to the fact that this, this came from nothing and that nobody designed it because it's so fine-tuned and everything has to be such a, a way, otherwise the whole thing unravels, that like, you have to, de- you, essentially you have to defy your own principles of scientific inquiry to hold to the idea that it just sort of blew up out of nothing over a long period of time of random chance. I mean, like as a scientific theory, it's sort of losing ground. Um, so this uh, is 
you know, obsessed with the pursuit of knowledge, which he points out, of course, is, is among one of the worthiest of human endeavors, right? So the reason that we're here in a Bible class um, and that we go to, to study the scriptures and, we, and people write books about the scriptures is because it's a worthwhile endeavor to pursue knowledge, right? Um, but there are two ways that we gain knowledge from God, right? Um, so what, take a guess. What do you think those two ways are? There's two ways that we get all the things that you know you've learned in two ways. God's word. Okay, God's word, and we will call that revelation, right? That's revealed knowledge. And then what's the other one? Holy Spirit. I don't know. It, well, that would I mean, fall under the revelation. revelation. Yeah. The other one is like learned or studied, right? So um, just to use an example, we'll just use the idea of God as an example. One could make the argument from apologetics that um, the best inference based on the knowledge that we have about the universe is that it was made by somebody, right? It was made by a God, whatever that is, right? And the natural law of the world reveals that to me. I can study that and, and, and come to that conclusion without ever opening a Bible, right? Because um, the, the idea would be like you find a watch on the ground and your first assumption isn't, oh, that must have, all those pieces must have randomly fallen in and <laughs> taken the shape and made the watch and it all works together, right? The thought is, oh, somebody made this, right? And so that would be an example of like a learned knowledge, right? But there's no way with natural law and the faculties of reason and logic we would have, we would ever come to any conclusion about the nature of God, that he's three in one, that he loves us, that he, he loved us enough to send Jesus, that he somehow became true God and true man and died. All of those things, there's no way in our own, by our own reason or strength we would ever come to anything close to that. And so the only way we can know that is through revealed knowledge. Now, speculation hates revealed knowledge because it means that we're limited in some way that we can't know something unless it's been given to us. And so speculation, um, that's why like people who think that we can figure things out, they're drawn to science and industry, because if I figure something out, I can exercise some sort of control over it. And we'd like to feel like we can be in control of things. Right? Um, so most of the sort of visions of the future, there's always like, the visions always include humans transcending their limits, that they're in control of things that we're not currently in control of, cars that fly, energy that is cheap and never-ending, um, that we've mastered time and we can travel and all those sorts of things. Those are all outgrowths of this idea that if we can know everything, then we can control everything, and we then become what? God. God. <clears throat> the earliest heresy that, the, that most people have heard of that follows this is Gnosticism. Right? So uh, the secret knowledge, and once you get the secret knowledge, you're, you're sort of ascending to, um, to righteousness. Now, how might this um, sort of rear its ugly head within Christianity? Um, well, in Lutheran circles, you can become too insistent about you have to know things in order to be saved. Um, it, can, it can go over into the realm of, well, if you don't really know this, then you can't. You can't do it correctly and all those sorts of things. And there are times where that can be true, but it's less true than we sometimes, like in the way that we sometimes talk, because it, what is it that saves you? Jesus. Right, faith in Jesus. And we believe that faith isn't even an act of our own. It's a gift from God, right? So um, a simple faith is a valid faith and a saving faith. 
Um, so just because like some of the books we read or the, the discussions we have at church, you're like, not only do I not really understand what you're saying, but I don't care to, that's okay. Right? As long as the basic stuff is there, and that's kind of what he's going to highlight in this book, is sort of the essential basics, not only of the, the faith, but the things that sort of set it apart for him. All right, we have a new, new class member. Okay. Uh-huh. Have fun. <clears throat> okay. Um, and then the third one is mysticism. Um, and mysticism is all about transcending normal human life and in some way becoming one with God. Right? Um, and so there's, uh, there's always... Um, well, mysticism is probably the most popular uh, among those sort of spiritually seeking types. And why do you think that is? What does mysticism promise that really draws people, you think? That's the, that's the like of a, that's the type of appealing spirituality that the wow moment that people were looking for, exactly. like you were saying before. Yeah, it promises like, you know, powers and, and transcendent experiences, yeah. right. It's going to knock your socks off kind of stuff. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what everybody is, is obsessed with, right? Because you would think if God is acting in the world, I'm going to know it. I'm going to know it, right? He's not going to do some small thing. He's going to do some amazing thing like parting an ocean, mm. right? Or, um, or bringing somebody back from the dead, right? Those are the things that we are expecting. And then he starts the church and, and gives it all this seemingly, at least to the outward eye, a bunch of really boring mm-hmm. everyday things. And we're almost immediately dissatisfied. Right. Yeah. Like, can it be more? Like, yeah. I wish it were more. It would be a lot easier for me to convince somebody to come here if I could point to, like, a great big shining light that's hovering above the city that's raising people from the dead. Right? Which, God is really real, right? Yeah. Like, Which is really surprising about this book is because he goes that path. He, he, dis, he discounts these mm-hmm. and gets to just what you're saying. And yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. If he spits it out, he's like, hey, buddy. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah, and that is really one of the things that's so fascinating about it is um, that even that, and it takes a long time for some people to reach that that emptiness, right? Um, In... In Christian circles, this takes on the form of like an obsession with transcendent worship experiences. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're very against that in the Lutheran Church because you can't make those, right? They do happen. Like, so there, and you probably have experienced a time in worship, whether it was a time of, a, a, in a time of great sorrow or great joy, where like something in worship, and it could have even been, it's a song I've sung a hundred times or a thing I've done a bunch of times, but today, for whatever reason, I just got chills, and it really hit me a different way, right? And that's sort of a transcendent experience of the spirit, and they do happen. Yeah. But a lot of like, and this is very common in non-denoms and a lot of Protestant evangelical circles, especially um, where they really lean into it, like in Pentecostal circles, yeah, yeah. where the the gathering is not really about the gifts of God, but it's about your transcendent experience that you will get there. And so the problem with that is, what happens to you when you go and it's not happening? Then, then you're not doing it right. Right, right. right. So the, fir- the first step is, yeah. I'm not, I must not be doing this right. I must, or my faith must not really yes. be real. Yeah. So yes. then that leads to must guilt yeah. and shame. 
And then it eventually gets you to a place of emptiness and, you've, and you're just like, either this is real and it doesn't work for me, which makes me really sad, or I'm just going to say, this is a load of crock and I'm leaving. Right? Um, and so uh, this is one of the reasons that um, Lutheranism has always had this real struggle with the, the music debate that's been going on for 60 or 70 years, is the newer forms of Christian music are much more focused on the, the resulting experience from the emotive nature of music, and they're much less focused on the words, right? Which is why they typically use much fewer words that they repeat more often, because it's more about the feeling that the music is giving you in the context of worship, which isn't a bad thing, because you get that from hymns. But for Lutherans, the word has always been the main thing, right? Mm -hmm. So in music, the way that we honor God in music is with the right words, and so, um, so here, when, when we're looking at some of the contemporary ones, I will reject some of them, because, not because the tune or the instrumentation or any of that stuff, it's because the words are saying something that isn't faithful to the scriptures. And unfortunately, sometimes it's a, it's a song that, like, I really like the tune, and I wish we could sing it, and I'd like to just change a few lines, and then we could, but that violates copyright law, so I can't do that. Um, but, uh, so that that shifts the focus away from this sort of mystic influence. Um, there's plenty of mystic things going on in church. They're just not mystic in the flashy, like I'm weeping and jumping for joy the next moment sort of sense that people want. And you can see this with, um, have you ever, is there something where like, you, you know, you have a day where you're just like, you just want to feel something. So you're like, I'm going to watch a sad movie or read a sad book or um, watch something that'll make me laugh so I can take my mind off of things. Right. Um, that is, that's sort of a similar purpose to what music got sort of moved into in the worship service with this sort of new age sort of mysticism that came out of the sixties and seventies. Um, and again, the emotive response to that stuff isn't bad but it's not the purpose of those things. Because eventually, like all these others, who becomes then the most important person in the equation between God and you? Yeah. You do, right? Whether it's your will or your knowledge or your experience, right? And in our culture, that's almost the reasoning people give for everything. Mm -hmm. It's either their will, their opinion about something, their knowledge, or what they think is knowledge, or their experience. And the Bible teaches us that we're not reliable in any of those ways. I can't trust my reason completely. I can't trust my will, certainly. And I certainly can't trust my, my experience or my recall of my own experience. Right? You've, you've, we've all probably got a story we've told so many times that it has nothing even resembling the actual experience we encountered. Because over, over you know, 50 years, I've added a little detail here, took away this little detail, and I didn't even realize I was doing it because I can't really remember the whole thing. And now it's taken on a totally different thing. Right? So the, these are all um, kind of the natural ways that we relate to God. Um, and from the Christian perspective, that makes sense because what has been disrupted by sin is our natural inclinations and impulses. So it makes sense that if we're just following what sort of comes naturally to us, we're not going to end up in the place we're supposed to go. Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so on page, let's see, page 31 and 32, he talks about some of the um, Christian mystical experiences. So I was going to read that a little bit. So uh, even Christian mystical experience while drawing away, this bottom of 31, 
Uh, such formulations can veer close to claiming supernatural power from divine inspiration, with the Holy Spirit speaking to the person directly to the power to work miracles, um, so like snake healers and uh, or snake charmers and, and faith healers, um, and then as well as um, like I've known a few people that will say that have said to me that well the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said that I could this is okay, even though it's something that's like directly violating the written word of God. Right. And people would, uh, early on, whenever the alternate sexual lifestyles really were, were, were coming before, that was one of the common things that would be said. Um, because, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was likely that somebody who was, who was going down that path was in a Christian family. So they were coming up with some sort of Christian justification um, for why they were making a decision that was clearly against something in the Bible. And they would say, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and, and he said that I could still be a Christian, love God, and do this. Um, and uh, our response to that is usually like, well, the Bible also says that not every spirit comes from God, um, and the way that you test that just so happens to be, is it consistent with what God says in his word, right? If it's not, it's automatically a spirit that's not from God, right? Um, but uh, and then he says, uh, mysticism can come dangerously close to the serpent's primal temptation, you will be like God in Genesis 3. Uh, so even when mysticism does not go that far, it's temptation to use God for one's own purposes, to achieve an intensely pleasurable experience, to score a spiritual high, to gain power to make one's life more pleasant. That This is the way of magicians and con men as well as spiritual masters. The notion itself that the spirit is something that can be mastered shows the limitations of mysticism. Even at its best, mysticism tends to retreat into the self, into the interior emotions, shutting out the exterior world and those who dwell therein. At least this was the way it was with me. Um, and then he talks about sort of the main problem with all three of these ways. He says, All three of these conventional approaches to spirituality involve human beings expending strenuous effort to reach God, who is, by implication, an impassive observer far above the fray, a goal that must be attained, a treasure that must be sought, discovered, and earned. Caberly says that the, these three approaches to spirituality are tied to the various faculties of the human mind. Moralism exerts the will, speculation, speculation exerts the efforts of the intellect, and mysticism exerts the efforts of the emotions. Uh, Lutheran spirituality begins with this insight, with the insight that all human effort to reach God is futile. Okay. So, um, at my first call, I had a member there who really hated the the standard confession that the church has made, and his reasoning was it's so depressing. Like, what are what is a visitor going to think when they come in and we're all collectively saying I'm a poor miserable sinner? They're just not they're not going to want to be around. It's not going to want to come back. Like, who talks that? It's just so depressing, right? Uh, what was he missing there? The truth. <laughs> so right. one is is the idea that even even unpleasant truths are truths, right? Uh, which is something that we seem to have forgotten uh, in our culture, right? And that we've got the position. Exactly, right? It's not a despair-inducing comment because of the context in which it's made, right? You didn't come to church to just say, "I'm a poor miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins," and then you leave, right? And God doesn't make you wait till the end of the service before he addresses the confession. He addresses it right away through the pastor who says that as a called ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I therefore forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, 
And both of those things are true at the same time. And that's that's sort of the and he, we'll get into some of the he'll get into some of the paradoxical things, these things that don't seem to work together, uh, but do in Christianity. The other thing that this uh, this futility highlights right off the bat is that Christianity is actually um, the opposite of every other religious expression that has ever been conceived of. Mm-hmm. Um, every natural religious adherence follows this pattern. Through strenuous effort, we are trying to reach God, whether it's through sacrifice of animals or people, whether it's through right living and the sacrifice of money in service to God or harvest or um, just like the things that I'd really like to do, I'm not going to do. I'm going to forego those desires because in order to be right in God's eyes, I need to make this sort of sacrifice, right? Um, and you can look at any, any religious practice, any spiritual practice, that pattern is true. It's all about your behavior in order to somehow become worthy of the deity that you worship's affection or to appease his wrath against you so that you're not destroyed, all those sorts of things, right? Um, So how is it that Christianity is the opposite to that? You won't take it. I'm Uh, trying to give it to him. Hey, buddy. I thought he was almost asleep. (laughs) Well, that is when he gets most fussy because sleep is the greatest enemy of all time. (laughs) So it must be resisted with all... Yeah. His eyes were like little slits, yeah. and then. Yeah. And then well, if you won't take it, then just leave him like that, and you should be okay. I thought maybe I keep rocking him. The motion. Hey, buddy. <laughs> there, yeah, he took it very, very warm. There we go. Let's see if we can. Um, keep sorry, you were saying. I was just going to say, it's funny that it's like, it seems like uh, man, the innate needs of mankind is to. Uh, search for the peace of God. That's what it's about. And that the three major ways that it, with all the major religions, the moralism, speculation, mysticism, are all me-based. It's like I got to do something to get there. Yeah. And Christianity is... And what do you think drives that impulse? I think in part it's the thought that if I have problems, I can solve them. I mean, I I can do it. There's something, I think there's something that drives even that, right? Is a sense that um, I have to earn it or something, maybe I don't know. Yeah, and I think that comes from even if you know we know that there's something wrong with the world, and we know that we have some active role in what's wrong, because all of us deep down have this idea of right. what we ought to be doing that we never seem to live up to. Right. right. Even if we never tell anybody else that, it's just something that happens in our own mind because we're able to conceive. You know. You know, if I was really a better, uh, if I ate better food and went to the gym, I'd, I'd, I'd be, take, be taking better care of my body. Or if I went and volunteered on a regular basis, I'd, I'd feel better about the way that I, I deal with, like, the homeless person I drive by on the way to work every day and ignore. Or, you know, whatever, whatever thing it is, there's always a sense, and nobody has to tell you this, there's a sense within you that there's this picture of the way things ought to be and it isn't that way and I know on some level that I'm a part of that problem. Mm-hmm. And when you know you're part of a problem, the natural impulse is you want to be the one to solve it because then you can sort of absolve yourself of the guilt of your wrongdoing. Right. Uh, the only problem is, according to our faith, 
you just can't. It's a problem beyond your ability to, to deal with. And even you trying to deal with it just digs you deeper into the hole in the same problem. Right? Um, and so the, we're all drawn to these because they give us some sense of hope that we can fix the thing that we've messed up. Because we're much more comfortable with that idea. Right? If I can fix the thing that I feel like I've been a part of breaking, then I can find some peace for myself and that's often why I think people in those in that follow these paths, they may have themselves forgotten, but at the beginning it was a it was an outpouring of some sort of guilt over being a part of this thing that isn't working the way it's supposed to. Even if they can't really articulate how it's supposed to work or why it isn't working the way it is, because that's what that impulse is really driving towards. Because what are you what are you looking for when you want to be able to live and behave in a certain righteous way? Is then you'll finally be comfortable with yourself. In the life that you're living, you won't feel guilty about the things you're not doing that you should be doing and all that sort of stuff, right? The same with speculation. It's that if I get all of the knowledge that I need in order to, uh, in order to understand everything, then I'll be content, right? And, of course, we know that that's all, that all is a lie. At some point, it doesn't work. The same with mysticism, right? Um, so... But is that part of the paradox is, is that there's not... These are not things to be totally avoided. They're just not the overall yes. path to salvation. Right. So these these things are not bad, but they've become idols. Yeah. Is their problem right? They've taken on a, a place. They've and occupied a place it. for people that only belongs to God. Right. And so then they eat, they don't even become really the thing that they're intended to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're a follower of speculation and you're obsessed with knowledge, you won't. You won't have any of the joy of, of the knowledge you discover because it's never enough. And it always needs to be more because we're not quite where we're satisfied, right? And the horror of that eventually is you realize you're never going to be satisfied, right? Um, and all of that. So the, the fact that, that Lutheranism right out of the gate basically says, you might as well give up, man. It's just not going to work. <laughs> whether it's your behavior, whether it's knowing enough, whether it's uh, feeling enough, you're going to lose on every single one of those yeah, accounts, yeah. and you're always going to lose on every one of those accounts. Okay, I, right? I get it now. That's right. Th- that's what. It, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and at it, first, I was. If you read it, you'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that's where like you can see how if somebody's been bouncing around to you know different religious practices that are all kind of are in this spectrum, and then you come to a place that's basically like we're so messed up. We can't do anything right. We haven't done the things we're supposed to do. We haven't done the things that we... We've done the things we shouldn't do. And then the whole appeal to mercy isn't, have mercy on me, give me more time, I can do better. It's, have mercy on me because Jesus did better in my place. And, right. and even like, like Zen Buddhism, it's like they... I want to remove all these trappings. I want to have right. nothing left. Right. And it's like you're missing it. <laughs> you know, you're, right. You're, right. You're, yeah, you're, you're getting rid of a lot of the false trappings, but now you still have a vacuous... Well, you're also getting rid of all the real stuff. Yeah, you're right? getting you have like a bag that of... Like 98% of, of day-to-day stuff yeah. in Zen Buddhism, you basically yeah. try to progressively get rid of all that get stuff, and then all of a sudden your life experiences the remaining 2%, mm-hmm. uh, and you have none of that other stuff, yeah. which... In a certain sense, I could see how that would be freeing because then you don't really have any obligations or ties, but it's also, like, nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just total emptiness. Um, but, yeah, so 
So you can see how somebody who's been going down this path, oh, they run into a Lutheran church and they and they hear that right out the gate, it would be a quite quite a shocking admission and realization. And when you're not ready to hear it, it sounds like a cop out. When you're not ready to hear it, it sounds like somebody's just saying they're just sort of giving up the game before they've even tried, right? But if there's somebody who's really tried over and over again to play the game and they realize that it, it's a false game to begin with and it never ends, it's the sweetest thing that you can hear. Like, because they're like, you're, wait a minute, that's like a, that's even an option? I can do that? Like, because it wouldn't even occur to you if you're obsessed in, in this, this search where humans have to become worthy of God. That, like, step one is, hi, my name is Adam, I'm a sinner, hopelessly so. And I can't do anything about it. Like, step one, right? Um, so he points that out. That's the first thing that he encountered that really just sort of was, like, abnormal that he had not really experienced anywhere else in his search, okay? And I think this is one of the reasons it's particularly important to read books by people like this, especially if you grew up in the Lutheran Church, is you, you don't realize the treasures that you have and how unique they are. I mean, Lutheranism, Orthodox Lutheranism, is like the third option among Catholics and Protestants, but most people don't even know there's a third option. They think, I'm either Catholic or I'm not Catholic, and if I'm not Catholic, that means I'm a mainline Protestant. And we're not in either of those camps. Right? Um, we're somewhere in the middle, which seems to be, in my experience of Christianity and the reading of the Word, the Christian life is usually in that tension in the middle because we're in the world but not of the world, and that we're sinners but also saints. Um, and so we don't have it all the way, both directions. We're always kind of in the middle. Um, <clears throat> so, he says, Lutheran spirituality begins with the insight that all human effort to reach God is futile. The will, to use Luther's term, is in bondage. Not only can we not fulfill the moral law perfectly, but on the deepest level, we do not want to. The law, the intellect is in bondage of its own, bound by its limits and tainted by the sinful will. The emotions are likewise in bondage, apt more to lead us astray than to lead us to God. Far from ascending to God, we spend most of our time trying to run away from him. But God is no passive observer, no abstract being far beyond the world and looking down. Rather, God is the one who is active, not ourselves. The issue is not our ascent to God, but God's descent to us. So that's, you can even think of it directionally, it's the opposite, right? Man-made religion is man ascending to God. God-made religion is God descending to man. And there's only one that makes that claim. And that's Christianity. Okay. Um, a couple of points for the law and gospel here, and feel free to... Um, everybody kind of familiar with the dynamic of law and gospel? So law are the things that, in the scriptures, that God commands us to do for him. And gospel are the descriptions of all the things that God does for us. Right? So when you're reading the scriptures, you can pretty much always separate what's being said into one of those two camps. Right? So go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. What is that? Is that law or is that gospel? Law. It's law, right? Because God is asking us to do something. He's making a command. Right? Um, and so it's a, it's a conditional thing. Go do this thing. Right? You need to do this. Um, or like the Ten Commandments, do not steal. Right? That's a law. Right? Uh, what's an example of the gospel? There's a famous one everybody knows. John 3.16. Right. I was going to say that. Or 
that yeah. would settle the world in Game of Thrones. Right. Right. And the easy way to know which is uh, which is which, it doesn't always work, but it works almost all the time, is who is the subject that's doing the acting? Right? If the subject is me and I'm supposed to do something, it's a law. If the subject is God and he is doing something, it's gospel. Right? So John 3.16 is gospel because it's describing what God is doing for us. Because he so loved the world, he sent his only son. I didn't do that. I didn't love the world. I didn't love God. I didn't send anything. He did all that, right? Uh, and it doesn't say, and it won't work for you unless you blah, right? Um, anytime we attach a condition to a promise of God, it's no longer a promise. It becomes a law, right? Um, that's why it has to remain unconditional. So um, a couple of things here. This creates a dilemma for us as Lutherans uh, about faith, right? If it's not an act of will that we generate... How do we get it? How does faith happen? So on page 36, it says, Faith is not mere intellectual assent to certain beliefs. This would be the way of speculation. Nor is it any version of positive thinking or cosmic optimism. Nor is it, as Kierkegaard describes it, a leap into what cannot be known. Faith is not an experience. This would be the way of mysticism. Faith, for Lutherans, is not a decision to accept Christ, as it is described by later evangelicals. Making salvation a function of the will would be moralism, dependent again upon what we do, our effort, willpower, and action in all of their actual futility. Lutherans consider faith itself to be a gift of God created in the human heart as his action, God's action, through the Holy Spirit, working through word and sacrament, which he's going to explain later. Faith has to do with trust, with conscience, dependence on Christ, the assurance that, in fact, he will do it all. For faith justifies and saves not because it is a worthy work in itself, explains Melanchthon, but only because it receives the promised mercy. So, faith as a gift given outside of your control. right? And it's given, as we'll get into in the next section, with through the means of grace. Right? So for Lutherans, that's why you do need to come to church. You need to come to church not in the sense that I'm wagging my finger at you and threatening you with punishment if you don't. It's more like it's the only place you can find the sort of food that you need to sustain your new life in Christ. And if you don't come, you'll starve to death. Just like if you just stop eating food, I can say to you, you need to eat food. Not because I'm going to whip you if you don't, but if you don't, you'll starve. Okay? Um, and so that's the nature of this it's always being a gift, right? And the, the understanding that we have. So that, that's one of the reasons why I intentionally say what I say when we enter into the divine service. I say you didn't come here to do and to perform, but to receive. Because the word divine service was chosen intentionally. The one doing the serving on Sunday is not us. It's God. Which is super bizarre if we're following one of these things because we're the ones that are supposed to be doing the serving. But it's not the case. On Sunday morning, in this, this normal building, on this normal patch of land in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, the God of the universe comes to you and gives you his gifts. Right? And so you get this weird paradox of the mundane and the divine that is total nonsense to somebody who doesn't have faith because you can't see it. Right? Without faith, it's just water. Without faith, it's just a little wafer of bread that doesn't even taste very good and some wine that if I had to choose, I would drink something else. But in those things, 
God, the God of the universe, is giving new life and sustaining new life and forgiving sins. Um, and so that, that's the, the emphasis here. So if faith is a gift from God and I can't make it up myself, the question then remains, how does one have faith then? Right? And, what, and the answer to that is that the church is called to bring the means of grace to bear in the lives of people. So we're called to share the word. Right? And, so, and Paul, Paul says his thing here. He had it in here somewhere. I'm trying to remember where it was. Um, where he talks about, like, uh, how will they come to know if they've never heard, and how are they going to hear if no one's sent? Right? Um, so we understand that the gifts given to the church through the disciples are the word of God and the sacraments. And it is only through those things can people experience what they need to experience from the Holy Spirit in order to have faith. And so that's what we do. Right? Now, again, I can't go so far to say that the Holy Spirit can't do that some other way. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But even if he did, it does not matter to the church because the church has been given all the things it needs to carry out the will of God that's been given to it. Right? In order to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, we've got that, we've got the gifts for that, and teaching them all the things that I have commanded you. Right? We have all that. It's right here. And so our job is to share those things because that's the only way that God, um, that we know of, that God can, we can promise God to be present in the lives of people. Okay? So the, the real radical nature of this is that God is the one doing and acting. He's the one coming to. He's the one lifting up. He's the one redeeming. Right? And it's not, it's not an activity of our own. So you can see when you set it up that way, even if you've always lived in, in a Lutheran context, how radically different that is if you've been bouncing around trying to find the way to God. You probably wouldn't even consider this an option because it's got to be my experience, my, my emotion, my intellect, or my will, and I've got to use it so that I can somehow become worthy. Right? Uh, and we're, we go a totally different direction. Totally different direction. Well, it's, a, it's a minority view, and people just stay away from, you know what I mean? They just figure follow the herd and just go for a majority view where right. I earn it somehow. Right? Well, and it, it's easier to do one of these because it comes more naturally to us. It fulfills yeah. uh, the, not, the not good desires of our fallen nature, which is always easier to do that, right? Um, the way it's described in Timothy is it says people will search after those who will itch their ears, in other words, they're going to tell them the things that they already want to hear, and they're going to like that. Right? And there's always a draw to that, and we, and we fall into that as well. Right? Like there's all kinds of things that we will we'll hear, and we're like, yeah, that's right, even though like I don't really know if it's right. I just heard this person say it, and I want it to be true, so it's true. Right? And usually the way that you see that is if you talk to somebody who's in that mode of thinking, they don't reference anything outside of themselves to support why they think something is true. Right, so I've had a couple of conversations over the years with people regarding communion about that, and they'll be, they'll be emotionally upset, and they'll refer to personal experiences, and I'll try to bring the scriptures into the discussion, but they won't really engage with it. Now, that could be because maybe they know that the Bible's not really on the side that they're trying to advocate for, and so they don't want to enter that arena because they'll lose. That's possible. Or it could be that that doesn't matter to them. What's more important to them is their experience and the things that people have told them that they wanted to hear, and it's confirmed what they what they wanted, right? And so they'll say, uh, that's where you get ideas like, well, not giving communion is disrespectful, or 
mean or whatever. It's like, where does the Bible say anything about that? Mm -hmm. In fact, the Bible, if it says anything, it says don't throw pearls before swine. Right? Don't, don't give the greatest gift of all, the very, the very body and blood of the Son of God, to people who don't even recognize it for what it is. Because then they're going to be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Right? But if you don't read the scriptures or, or care to be shaped by them, that's not going to matter to you. It's just going to be mean. Right? Um, so that, that's that, the kind of thing. There. That reaction, I think, is very comparable to... If you have church conflict and you have a need for reconciliation, it's the same thing. Yes. People have a hundred opinions, but you start to talk about the scriptures, and it's like, well, I've, you know, don't tell me about the Bible. We're not going to reduce this to that discussion, are we? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like reduce it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. As if your opinion about something is of higher value than God's yeah. statement or, about what it actually is. Right. Um, and that's that comes with a sort of humility that is a natural byproduct of a biblical faith. Because, I mean, how can you not be humble when step one is admitting that every effort of yours is a futile attempt because you're so broken by sin? Right? That essentially means that what you're saying at the outset is, I can do nothing, I don't feel anything correctly, and I know nothing. And if you start from that place, you it's very difficult I mean, we're still able to succeed because of our fallen nature, but it's very difficult to get to uh, I know best. Yeah. Because step one is I, I not even forget about best. I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Everything I try to do turns out terrible, right? Um, and it's not depressing because then you are freed from that pursuit. Because that's all that does is it imprisons you further and further and further into this delusion that you can fix things when you can't until something comes along that really just totally dashes your hopes about it. Right? And it does happen. It, it will happen, whether it's your own death or something else. Uh, and, and I've seen it, and it's, it's, it's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this way, you're, you're set free from that pursuit and truly free because the one who can do the things that you know ought to be done actually did do them, and he did them for you. And they now belong to you even though they have no business being anywhere near you because he's given them to you. And then it's just sort of like a, like when you're ready to hear that, it's just, you just like can release all that tension. It's that, you know, that's where that take a deep breath comes from at the beginning of the service. Because you don't have to hold on to any of that. You don't have to hold on to the worry about, oh, did I dress nice enough? Like, I, I, he forgives things, but like last week, you know, you know, you can just let all that go. Because you're not here to make him love you. He already does. And he's just going to make that apparent by giving you a bunch of the best stuff there is. Um, and when you're ready for that, that's just like totally life-changing. Totally life-changing. And it's a much easier thing to invite people into, by the way. Than like, you want to join me on a tireless journey that always ends in despair? All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's close with uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. 